Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think you will find that throughout the Gospel of John, these two themes of life and light are going to be commonplace. And the beginnings of these two themes are first here, and then you're just going to see them throughout because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He also says, I am the light of the world. So because he makes this proclamation that he is life and light, John begins to the, explain what it means to be life and light. And that's what we're going to look at today is, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the life and I am the light? First, we're going to look at verse 4. In verse 4, we see Jesus as life. In him was life. Very simple. Very simple statement. And in that, there are a number of different ways that Jesus describes himself as life. But we're going to look at three different ways. First is physical life. When John says life is in him, he's telling us that our physical life is actually dependent on Jesus. And that's not an uncommon statement. In fact, it's something that he, John had just stated in verse 3. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so therefore, since Jesus created us and made us and sustains us, he is life, and in him is life. Paul describes it this way in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. So what does this mean for us? It means that if Jesus created you and gives you the very breath that you breathe, that this morning when you woke up, the reason why you didn't simply die is because Jesus gave you the breath of life. Well, that means that your life is pretty valuable. If God, the creator of the universe, allows you to live and sustains you and keeps you going, he's doing that because he actually cares about you. You are significant. And it's not just your spiritual being, which I don't know if you know anything about the Greek philosopher Plato, is he believed that the physical part of you was evil and the spiritual part of you is good. And that type of dichotomy is not found in the Bible. The Bible believes that your physical being is intertwined with your spiritual being. And therefore, every part of you is significant, important, worthwhile. And so actually your physical well-being and your life is a reflection in some way of the image of God. And because you are an image bearer of God, you need to be treated with dignity and respect as well as those around you. And so that's why so many Christians who believe in the Bible and believe and submit to a sovereign God actually believe someone who is in the womb is a person and is to be shown dignity and respect. It means that someone who is different you from you in color or in life stage, in, in just the, their ethnicity, their nationality, they need to be shown dignity as well 
because Jesus has created this person, just like he's created you. And there is no greater standard and power by which we actually show this type of respect to other people than knowing that we are all created by Christ. Dignity based on Jesus as creator destroys and breaks the power of the evil of racism and prejudice and bigotry. Do not think that bigotry and prejudice is based on what type of ethnicity you are, regardless of where you come from, who you are, what nation you're part of, what color or race. I think you know this, is that prejudice and bigotry is a part of all of our hearts. And even if you're born in the United States, and you look exactly like everybody else, if that person is born in the South and you're born in the North, there's an inherent prejudice. Even within the state of California, oh, if you're born in Shasta County versus the Bay Area versus Los Angeles, there's automatic generalizations that are made in your mind. No matter what ethnicity are you are, what color you are, what life stage you are, there's this inherent inclination to favor one person over another simply based on the fact that this person is like me. There's nothing really deeply wrong per se about that, that we have some sort of affinity towards people like us. But if that keeps us from showing dignity and respect towards another, then we have lost this identity of actually having Christ as our king as our creator. And so recognizing that's really important, what destroys um, prejudice is knowing we are in Christ. It's not gonna be politics. It's not gonna be an economic system, a welfare system. None of that is going to get rid of prejudice. History won't, nothing. Christ and Christ alone. Because it's, it makes sense. If we're all created in the image of God, then we need to treat people that way. We need to see them as significant and worthwhile completely. Also, the implication of knowing that Jesus is over our physical lives is that your physical body is precious to him. That is to say that who you are physically matters. Now, I know some of you are literally breaking down physically. You know, you're experiencing in the end, the fact that there is still sin and brokenness in this world. And our physical limitations is showing us that truth. Well, Jesus actually cares about your physical body. And that's why abusing it is wrong. Scripture tells us that it's wrong. It's something that if we have life in him, then how we treat our physical body matters. And so therefore, when we abuse alcohol, when we abuse drugs, again, there's, I think so often we think of Christians as really fighting the battle of saying, oh, you shouldn't drink alcohol. Oh, you shouldn't drink too many beers. Or too. We lose sight of what really is at stake. It's that this body of ours is intended for God-glorifying purposes. It's why we are so much against things like pornography, exploitation of people sexually, because of the fact that this body has been bought. It's been bought with a price. And it's been created by God in his image. And so therefore, 
We don't fill it with drugs. We don't harm it. We, we actually are mindful of the fact that we should exercise, not because it's simply healthy for our body, but God has given us our bodies to steward over. We watch what we eat. Now, again, there's the extreme on the other end where we so care about exercise and how we eat and what we eat that therefore it becomes almost an idol worship, really, of the body. There is, though, this stewardship aspect of what we do physically and therefore self-harm, mistreating our bodies, um, even mistreating other people's bodies. All of that matters so much. Here's the thing is that one day your physical body is going to be resurrected. It's, we're not going to be just these spirit beings floating around in space somewhere after we die. If you are in Christ, your physical body will be resurrected. Just in the same way that Jesus' physical body was resurrected. It will be so glorious, though, that if you could somehow see what you look like post-resurrection, if you are in Christ, you will be, as C.S. Lewis says, tempted to worship yourself. I mean, that's how dramatic and glorious you will be. Uh, I don't know what that means. Does that mean that for those of you who have lost hair, that you will have a full head of hair? (laughs) Does that mean that you who are, I know some of you are dealing with some back pain or you know, knee issues or, you know, just the creakiness of your body. Will that all change? Will it be finally I get rid of this spot that's on my face? I don't know. But I do know one thing is that it will be so glorious that no model, no athlete, no fitness guru could ever, ever, ever match what you will look like one day if you are in Christ. And so, Jesus cares about your physical body because in him was life, according to verse four. In him was life. Next, the implication or uh, just understanding of what verse four means, in him was life, is it's not just talking about our physical life, it's talking about our eternal life. We are told in 1 John 1.11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So if you are in Christ, you have eternal life. That's what verse uh, 111 tells us. In other words, you're not meant to live 80 to 100 years, Lord willing, right? That's a long time, but it's not a long time. And again, all you need to do is just consider your own self and your own years. I mean, how fast has life gone thus far? It's gone very quick, very, very quick. But this isn't it. There's so much more to live, infinitely more. And you have to keep that in mind throughout this journey of life. But it's so hard to actually keep the future in front of you when we're so wrapped up in the present. Because thinking about the future in the present is one of the most challenging things. Financial advisors will talk to, say, a 20-year-old and try to get them to save up for retirement. I mean, that just doesn't compute to someone. They just want a new car. They're not thinking about what's going to happen when they're 65 years old. 
or just simply have a child, try to get them to stop playing and maybe do their homework because actually getting a certain type of grade will lead to a certain type of, you know, point of where they can excel and succeed in life. It's hard to get a person, a child, anyone to think maybe even one year ahead, let alone infinitely ahead, eternity ahead. How do you get us to not take your to-do list as soon as you wake up anxious and to just want to knock them off one by one without just stopping, spending some time in prayer and dealing with our anxious hearts, dealing with God's word and seeing what he has to say for us. It is so hard because we are victims of the urgent, really. Whatever is most important to us now, we want to do. So getting us to think beyond our moment to eternity is so difficult for busy people who are cluttered with so much to do. But the Christian does think about eternity in life. You know, Jesus paid a dear price for your eternity. And you have to keep that in mind. That price is something that should drive what you do and why you do what you do. Now imagine this. You're diagnosed with a terrible blood disease. And the only way you can survive is if someone gives you a transfusion of all the blood in their body. I know there's no disease. I don't think there's a disease like that. I'm making this up. But imagine that's what it takes. They have to drain all your blood and then they have to give you all their, their own blood for you to survive. So of course, who would be willing to do this? Very few people. Maybe your family member, your mom or your dad, maybe. But no one's willing to do this. But let's say someone were to say, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you all my blood and you're going to transfuse it into your body. But all I ask is one thing. And the one thing is that you always remember uh, what I have done for you. And therefore, you live with joy and gratitude for the rest of your life. That's it. Now, if you're a decent enough person, you'll do it. That will, you might forget, but then something will happen along the way. You say, oh yeah, I, I was given this incredible gift of life. And if you talk to someone who's had an organ transplant, you see that in that person. They're so thankful for the donor of that organ. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying here is that Christians have been given a transfusion of Christ's eternal blood, spiritually speaking. He saved you for an eternity. And what he asks of you is not that you pay him back with some little trinket, such as your job or your family or you know, some money, a donation. And no, those are trinkets to him. Those are no different than the little you know, souvenirs that your child gets at a, at a supermarket buying a little you know, toy that just is thrown away at the last second. God doesn't care anything about all that we have. But what he asked for is that you would remember him, that you would trust him, that you would follow him because he has given a transfusion of his own blood shed for you. Hymn writer William Cooper writes so beautifully in... Um, this wonderful hymn, he says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That's a very vibrant metaphor and image, but that's what sinners do. We plunge into the blood of Christ because it costs all of that for us to have eternity with him. So that's eternal life. Thirdly, what we see from this idea of Jesus' life is abundant life. It's not just our physical life. It's not just our eternal life that's forever impacted. It is abundant life that Jesus wants for you and for me. Look at John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do not think that when you follow Jesus, he wants you to be miserable for your life. That's such a terrible misnomer and an idea of who Jesus is, what he wants for you. That's exactly the opposite of the Christian life. The Christian life is abundant life. Jesus came to give you rest, not burden. Jesus came to free you, not enslave you. Jesus came to renew you, to restore you, to lift you up on eagle's wings when you are weary, as Isaiah 40 says. So do we trust that to be true? Is that true? Now, to know what this looks like, you have to first realize that abundant life does not always look so abundant in the moment. Sometimes to get to abundant life, it can be absolute misery. Let me give you an example. There's a, a woman, uh, she's never flown on a plane before and she's deathly afraid of heights. She gets married and she's about to go on her honeymoon and she's going to Hawaii, first time ever. She's with her husband, her new husband, exciting trip. But the thing is, she has to go on an airplane. And so as the plane, she gets onto the plane, as she's taxiing on the runway, she grabs onto the armrest. And her face just looks sheet white, actually slowly turning green. And as the plane lifts off, a, a bout of turbulence hits the plane, and suddenly the plane is shaking. And she looks over in front of the seat and sees the barf bag, grabs it, lets loose, vomits, and is just miserable through that. I mean, she is green. I have, I have actually seen people who have flown next to me who have been green. I won't say who. It is someone in this church <laughs> who has looked very green on an airplane, very, and then had to run to the bathroom. Didn't do it. Thankfully, did not do it in the barf bag next to me. I won't even look at the person, but I'm tempted to look. But, um, well, here's this woman. She's barfing in this bag. She's miserable. She arrives into Oahu, and the rest of her honeymoon is just awesome. It's such a wonderful time with her new husband in this paradise place. I would say it was worth the difficulty even though it was very difficult. My friends, there is no doubt that when you follow Jesus, you will, according to scripture, have the greatest joy, indescribable, the greatest pleasure you can possibly have. He promises you that. That's not something that he just says offhand. When he says, I will give you life abundantly, he means it fully. 
but you have to trust him. But getting to that place sometimes can be really difficult. It can be. Sometimes there's trial. I read an article by uh, this woman and she was describing some of the challenges of this generation when it comes to relationships. And she was saying how because of, and interestingly enough, I know a number of us are in that state of parenting because of helicopter parenting. That is, and uh, they actually call it snowplow parenting, where you push away all obstacles so that your child never struggles at all. They never ever, if they get a B, you go to the teacher and say, you, you, you gave my child a B, they deserve an A. So then somehow the teacher is forced to give you an A. Well, she was described it this way. She said that, you know, children today are, parents are so afraid of children getting scraped knees that they no longer know how to run. And I think when you look at the implications and consequences, unintended consequences of all of our efforts to try to remove trial from life, what's happening is that a lot of, and this is the point of the article, and I'll post it onto the forum because it's actually a great article on, on today's generation, is that we have apps like Tinder, um, Coffee Meets Bagel, eHarmony, and the list is not, there, there's like Christian dating apps of reformed theology dating apps for Christians. And I mean, it says it's very broken down. And, you know, homeschool Christians dating app. I mean, there's everything. And so the, this concept of, well, if there's all these opportunities, there must be a lot more relationships. Well, there's more loneliness, more depression. People are getting married less and less. They're having less children. Uh, just the, the birth rate of industrialized nations having children, it's plummeting. It is plummeting. How is it that in a world where there's more so-called opportunities to get together, people are choosing less and less? Because everyone has been taught, get away from struggle. Relationship requires struggle. There's actually even sexual intimacy is on the decline. This is even outside of marriage, which is really shocking. So everything to do with relationship is completely plummeting in our world. Even though it seems like you have more social media, more than ever than before of ways to connect, people are connecting less because so many people have decided I want to prevent harm, trial, suffering for my children, for my family, for myself. And by doing that, actually, we are becoming less joyous. We're experiencing less pleasure than ever before. Richard Phillips tells this story about Charles Darwin. He's, a, you know, as we all know, the founder of evolutionary theory, a world without God, essentially, is what he's created. His biography reveals as he aged, he began to lose any delight or desire for life. He could no longer enjoy poetry, music, art, life. He describes it this way, lost its flavor. And in his last days, he had no wonder or joy in his life. 
Nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche describes life this way. Everything in the world displeases me, but above all, my displeasure in everything displeases me. And that's, that's what happens when there's no God, is that it's all about me, and me is miserable. When Jesus says, I promise you abundant life, but you have to trust me. And the way you're going to really experience abundant life is sometimes when you run, you're going to fall and you're going to get hurt and there's going to be pain. But eventually you'll get back up and you'll start running and you will enjoy. You'll enjoy the run. To know Christ is to live life fully. I can't tell you how real that is. I know this personally for my family, for myself. It is, the, as Stephen Chris Chapman said a long time ago, the greatest adventure. You know, it really is. Next, it's not just life that Jesus is, but he's light. Verse five, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light. And here, with this metaphor, John is saying a number of, a few statements about Jesus as light. First, light is life. Light is life. You cannot have life without light. The sun shines. It leads to chemical processes called photosynthesis. It happens in vegetation. If there's no light, there's no vegetation. If there's no vegetation, certain animals don't eat, and the cycle of life is broken, and there's only destruction. So clearly, light is essential for life. And Jesus is the means by which we have life. So that's foundational. But secondly is that light reveals reality. No matter how dark it is, once light enters, it shows us what is evident. We see this more in the NASB. So in verse 5 in the NASB, it says this. The New American Standard Bible, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I actually think that's a better translation than the ESV where it says overcome it. Overcome is one alternate translation of that word, but the reason why this makes more sense is if you look at verse 10, it says this, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So those three phrases do a really good job of explaining the same thing, which is that darkness causes people to not understand what's before them. Did not comprehend it, did not know him, did not receive him. I was watching a, a movie with um, my son yesterday. It's actually on Netflix. It's called 13 Lives. Anyone see that movie? Yeah, no one except for me. <laughs> Actually, it's a very interesting movie. It's a movie about the, um, the Thai soccer team, their kids who got trapped in the cave. And they, were, um, they had gone way into this deep cave. And then all these rains came, poured in. And so they had to get all these uh, rescuers to come. And they had Thai Navy seals and different people all around the world. It's actually a really good movie. I was really pleasantly surprised. Both Jack and I were sort of enthralled by it. We were going, oh, we didn't finish it, so we're going to finish it maybe today. But in it, 
it's so like as the rescuers are trying to save the, these children, they're going deep into this cave in the midst of stalactites and all the uh, water level is there and they're swimming through and it is so difficult to pass from one point to the next because of the darkness. When it's dark, everything is dangerous. Everything is something that can hurt you and kill you. And this is the point of what John is saying here is that when it is dark, when you do not comprehend it, the world did not know him, the world did not receive him, that's what happens when Jesus is not evident, is that there is a danger because you cannot see, it is so dark. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has the blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, darkness keeps those who do not know Christ from seeing reality and life as it truly is. Perhaps some of you have family members or neighbors or friends who are non-Christian. And sometimes if you share the gospel with them and there's no desire for them to even hear or listen, you can sense the darkness. And no matter what you say, no matter how convicted you are by it, there's still darkness. They cannot see. It doesn't make sense to them. There's a real disconnect of understanding of what, we're, what it means to be a person who believes in Christ. And so we realize that when people are in darkness, they will not understand him, and therefore they will not understand you. You will be an oddity to that person. Christians should be odd and peculiar to a dark world because if you are the light and you're speaking to someone who is not in the light, then it just seems odd and strange. Do not think that you should always fit perfectly in. When you decide everyone around you is getting drunk and you decide not to, and maybe they're doing that because they're trying to dull all the pain in their life, and you decide not to because you are going to intentionally experience the pain. You know why? Because we know that we don't need alcohol or drugs to try to dull the pain. We actually have someone who bore pain for us. That is our rescue, our source of help, our means of being able to overcome this pain. We never run from the pain. We turn to the one who actually bears it for us on that cross. We Christians, we refuse to seek revenge, even though in the moment it feels so good, especially when someone has unjustly wronged you. Um, I, you know, it's, a, it's sometimes it's stupid small things that matter. You know, I was on the, a phone call with um, customer service representative, I had purchased something online. And I had uh, used a gift card and used my credit card. And I said, can I make sure that I get an email confirmation? And they said, yes, we will. Doesn't come. So I give them a few days, nothing happens. So I call back and they, 
Well, anyway, I'm having this runaround conversation with this customer service representative, and in my mind, in my heart, I'm just so frustrated because no matter what I say, it doesn't matter, and I'm so tempted to blurt out. My wife is listening to this conversation with me, and she could sense. I think she could see my face temperature rising, but it is so much the Lord who's saying, "If you," and I don't always succeed in this. Sometimes I terribly fail, but if you simply blurt out, rightly so, "Oh, well, you've, you know, you've done this against me, and you have not been faithful, and you whatever, if whatever argument I use." I'll lose my witness. And I will act as though I am just as dark as the person around me. The Lord is telling you that sometimes you actually decide not to seek vengeance, not to pursue your greatest sense of self-justification. Sometimes you forgive others quickly because you have been forgiven. And you don't quit on people because they have betrayed you because you've betrayed someone and his name is Jesus. This is peculiar. This is odd. This is strange. Sometimes we choose suffering because we know today's suffering is going to give us much more joy later on. That's why Christian Corey Tenboom decides with his sister and his father to hide Jews from the Nazis. And they're all thrown into a concentration camp where the sister dies, the father is executed, and yet they still decide that. That's why Johnny Erickson Tato, who's a quadriplegic, claims and says, I would rather be in this state than to not know Christ. And so she's even thankful for her condition. That's why, as Christine was talking about with Foster in the Bay, Foster in the City, that why do you choose as an empty nester who's finally free to now foster a child. We do that because we know that we are a peculiar people. The light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. That's why, you know, some of our gospel global partners, George and Carolyn Sneeman, they lived in a place like we do in San Ramon, Danville, had a nice home, sold it all, gave it all up, and now cares for the poorest of the poor in all different parts of Africa. And we hear his stories over and over again where he's sleeping in you know, very difficult circumstances and his life is put into danger all the time. But he does that. It's peculiar. It's odd. It's strange. But it stands out. It is light in the darkness. The darkness says be as comfortable as you can. Comfort is this world's siren song. It is it calls out to you constantly, be comfortable, be prosperous. But to be the light, it is so strange that everyone starts questioning, what are you doing? You know, uh, Gabi and Anna Torrent are another gospel partner. And I think the reason why we choose some of these gospel partners is they exhibit this so well. When uh, Sung and I were in Spain and, and Thomas, we were talking to them and they had brought in 13 orphans and two adults into their family. And I'm thinking, how are you going to do this? I mean, you already have two children already. You know, when we're talking about fostering children, they're fostering 13 children. <laughs> 
And then, you know, since that time, they've taken in like another seven more children. I, I, I talk to him and I think, I, I want to say in my heart, don't you think it's too much? There's, there's a lot of me that think, I, I think it's too much. When is it ever going to be too much? And I don't, because I know why he's doing it. And it just is so strange. And that's why news crews come. While we were there, news crews were coming and interviewing him and saying, what, what are you doing? You have to understand, to be a Christian in Europe, it is, it's definitely strange. I mean, they think of evangelicals as a cult, especially in Spain, where the, um, Catholicism is so strong. And so therefore, someone like him would never get an audience to tell the world about Jesus Christ unless you're doing peculiar things, such as adopting or bringing into your family or fostering 20 children and three adults. How This is what it means to follow Christ, to believe truly that Jesus is the light and life. Who would intentionally choose the lesser road of life for the greater road? And the lesser road is the road of suffering when it could be all comfortable. So a single person, if you're single and you decide, I would rather be a single person for the rest of my days than to marry someone who does not know Christ. That's peculiar and strange to the world. But that's a person who stands straight in a crooked generation, as the Apostle Paul says, or who shines like stars in the darkness. When you defend someone at school who's being picked on and everyone else is picking on them and you decide, I'm going to stand with them, even though it costs you your reputation, that's standing straight. That's being the light. That's being peculiar, though. You see, our instinct is whenever there's something better, you take it. Better job, promotion, more money, relationship, house, neighborhood, retirement, um, being a, on the better sports team, automatically you should accept it. That's the world. That is darkness. That's what John is saying here is darkness is overcoming. But it is not darkness, but light when you trust in him. And when you trust in him, sometimes it's foolishness to the world. It's idiocy. It is the cross. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. My friends, the darkness is not worth it. Jesus promises you life and light forever, forever. And he paid a price for that. I hope you choose that road and see why he is not just going to bless you, but he will give you abundant life forever and ever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this gift of life eternal with you. It is not a life of misery or burden. Even though in the moment it can seem hard, trials might come our way, but we can take heart because you have overcome the world. Darkness has been dispelled because of the light 
of Christ. You give us freedom and joy and abundant life when we believe in you. But may we never forget that there was a cost to that life. And it's the cost of your own life. Your blood shed so that we might have life with you forever. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray.